Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Braden Enterman. The message this morning is entitled The Unlikeliest Victory. And I just want to testify before we open the word today that we serve an amazing God. You know, uh, my girlfriend and I are reading through the Bible cover to, go, to cover together over four months. It it's equates to 10 chapters a day. And it's a bit of a sizely amount, especially when you've just, when schedules are crazy and busy, you have to make time for those 10 chapters. We're up to 2 Samuel at the moment, and um, we're up to 2 Samuel at the moment, and I just want to say this. When I was a child, you know, I had the list, my list of favorite Bible characters. I'm sure that you had them as well. And, and you have those standout characters that really exemplified the character of God in a powerful, powerful way. And you have the people in the Bible that you say they were, they were good people and, and they were bad people. And then you've got the, the bad kings. Most of them were bad kings. And you've got the good kings. But as I read through Scripture, I'm just getting disappointed with humanity. I'm reading through the story of David. You know, was David a good man, generally? We say David. Yeah, David was, a, he was one of the good Bible characters. But I'm reading through his story and I'm seeing that even though God did amazing things through him, in so many areas, he was a patent failure. His massive stuff up with Bathsheba and the, the, the ensuing problems that came with Amnon and, and Tamar and his, his other son as well, it just, it just all spiraled out of control. And in that moment, I realized, yeah, David was a king of Judah from the line of the tribe of Judah, but he was not the one that could save the world. And I think of Jesus coming to restore and to reclaim everything that we have lost. Again, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads. Father in heaven, I want to pray with all of my heart, pleading that you would reveal yourself to each one of us, including me today. I pray that we would be impressed with just what you've done for us, Lord. Because we've been the recipients of your blessings every single day of our lives, it's hard to realize what life would be without you. I pray for each of us that we would gain a clearer insight into your extraordinary, extraordinary compassion and sympathy for the human family. And may we in turn sympathize with you as you work to solve this sin problem. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews to begin our study today. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll go to verse 17. And it says this, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Can someone say amen to that? The Bible says that in all things Jesus was made like unto his brethren. And for what purpose? According to that text. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Because he has suffered being tempted, he is able to give aid to us when we are tempted. And that is the beautiful life of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
Go over to chapter 4 and we'll read in verse 14. It says, verse 14 of chapter 4, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Nothing but infinite wisdom could devise the plan of salvation as we see in the scriptures. When we look at the, um, how the devil incited one third of the angels in heaven to, to be deceived regarding the character of God, then he brought the rebellion to, to planet earth and Adam and Eve fell and the human family followed in this, tra- this train of rebellion and death and pain. What would you do? What would you do to save this planet? You know, it's almost... I don't know if you've ever run over an animal in your travels out west or perhaps down the road somewhere. I've hit a few animals in my time and I tell you what, sometimes after I've hit them, I just know that there's nothing that I can do. There is nothing that I can do. There's no amount of surgery can put them back together again. And sometimes I come across them... And it just breaks my heart. And what's the thing that you reflexively want to do when you see an animal that's beyond repair? You want to put it out of its misery, right? It's just sad to let it suffer on. As you read through the scriptures, I'm reading terrible things that happened that we as human beings have done to one another. I read stories of where mothers are so hungry that they eat their own children to survive. I read stories where towns become so depraved that they will, all the men of the town will come out trying to do terrible things to the visitors of the town. I, I read shocking accounts after shocking accounts of what human beings have done to one another. And then I see God step in and he brings the people out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and he takes them and we're like, praise the Lord, God's doing something. But no matter what he does, it seems that everyone turns around and head back the other way. Oh, I wish we'd just died in Egypt. Moses, why'd you bring us out here? Oh, it was so much better back in Egypt. We had the the leeks and the onions and all that good stuff and the meat and whatever. It was so much better back there. Why'd you bring us out of here? And then God provides for them. And the very next day, again, they're just complaining. And for me, as I'm reading through, I'm just overwhelmed. We've got a problem down here. Human beings have got a problem. And I just began to sympathize with God in the work of salvation that he's engaged in. Do we have a high priest that can sympathize with us? Absolutely. I want to ask you today, do you sympathize with God? Has this been easy on God, this plan of salvation? No, it hasn't. It hurt him so much. It brought him to a place of abject despair in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross where he thought he wasn't going to come out of this one. This has hurt our God and I believe one of the greatest accomplishments that we can have is when we start to sympathize with God. To feel what he feels and to be overwhelmed with the depravity of humanity and look to him for the solutions. 
if you have a look through the life of Christ, was Jesus on a, on a schedule? Was time important to him? Absolutely it was. What did Jesus say often? My time, my time is fulfilled or my time has not yet come. There's some, his whole life is on, on a timeline. The disciples are like, hey, all the people are wanting you. And Jesus says, I've got other things I need to do. We need to go to the next town. I need to proclaim the gospel to them also. He's being led by the Spirit. Every day he's praying. Some nights he's spending the entire night in prayer. He's on a divine schedule. So we find out that time is very, very important to Jesus. Uh, turn with me very quickly to John chapter 9 and verse 4. John chapter 9 and verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In verses like this, we get a little insight into the fact that Jesus has got things to do and very limited time to do it in. With that as the background, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the account of when Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted for how many days? 40 days. Now, I did a little bit of um, calculations on my calculator, on my MacBook, and I worked out that that 40-day period of time equated to 3% of the entire public ministry of Jesus. 3% of his ministry was spent starving in the wilderness. Now, we've recognized, and it's very clear from Scripture, that everything that Jesus did was intentional. He didn't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I might just head... No, no, he was, he was led by the Spirit every single day. Everything was intentional. Every place that he went, every healing that he did was intentional. This was not a, uh, a haphazard, slapped-together plan. This was divinely laid out from the ages of eternity past. God had planned what this was going to be. So why in the world, after Jesus begins his public ministry, does he spend 3% of his entire time available to him out inside of the desert, starving? I want want you to read with me. Um, We'll go back to chapter 3 and verse 16 to set the stage. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I want you to picture it. Jesus comes up out of the water. He was was someone who was born of this lady down the road. Her name was Mary. He grew up in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. He was someone that people knew. He, was a, he had flesh and blood like that, that we do today. And he goes under the water and comes up and the God of the universe speaks down to him and says, You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. We kind of assume, at least I do, that that wouldn't have taken Jesus, that would not have been overly significant for Jesus. Oh, he's, he, he's, he's God. He's come in the flesh. He's come to be the saviour of the world. But had Jesus heard God's voice like that before? No. He had laid everything down and become a little baby and had grown up. And here he finally hears 
God the Father speak to him in a powerful way, confirming that he has been called to the mission of being the saviour of the world. Jesus, you're my son. You're my son. I love you. You're my beloved son. And in you, I'm well pleased. You have my approval, Jesus. You have my approval. Heaven itself is approving of what you are doing. That would have been extraordinarily significant. Hearing the voice of God, having voluntarily laid down all of your glory, all of your omniscience and omnipotence and come down and be a helpless babe and grow up just like we do. And he hears the voice of his father. That would have been so incredibly amazing. Then we go to 4 and verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into where? The wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For those of you who are familiar with this story, we kind of get used to and comfortable with the narrative of Christ's life. You know, he's baptized, and he went and fasted in the wilderness, and then he went here, and then he went there. And we don't stop to sometimes think, why in the world did Jesus do that? Hands up after your, your baptism. I'll, I'll ask Daniel. After your baptism, did you just feel like heading into the wilderness and starving yourself for 40 days and 40 nights? It's not a natural thing to do after you've been baptized. And did he do it of his own accord? Was this Jesus' idea? It says the Spirit led him. And he followed the Spirit. And he leaves the waters of Jordan and he starts walking out into the wilderness. I've got a a little map here of the likely place where Jesus went. He would have come from Nazareth and made his way over here to to be baptized by John and then just went east out into the wilderness. We don't know exactly where it was, but it would have been somewhere in there. And Jesus was... For 3% of his public ministry, without food, without water, and without shelter, out inside of the wilderness. It's very, very interesting. Now, we've got this, um, this pattern here. We've got the water to the wilderness. The water to the wilderness. Is that a familiar pattern in Scripture? Because we want to ask ourselves, why did Jesus do that? Water to the wilderness. Is that, is that something familiar in Scripture? Where? The Israelites. Where did they go? What water were they at? What water were they at? The Red Sea. And where did they go? Into the wilderness. The water to the wilderness. And if you can remember, Israel started out on that journey. Had God done amazing things that day at the Red Sea? How would you feel if... A sea kind of opened up and you walked through on dry land. Not soggy, dry land. That would mess you up. You would be overwhelmed to see such a miracle like that. It's kind of like hearing from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In fact, it's very interesting that one of the things that Aaron and Moses said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. It's very interesting. Moses and Aaron say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Let him go that he may serve me. It's interesting. Jesus himself went down to Egypt as a child. That's where he grew up. It's interesting. He found safety in Egypt because his own people were trying to kill him. It's very sad. But Jesus went down to Egypt. They were in Egypt, the, the nation of Israel. God said to 
Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. And then Jesus gets called, you are my son. Does it seem like Jesus is tracing the history of Israel? He's tracing the history. He's taking the steps again from Egypt right through to Canaan. But praise the Lord, friends, Jesus, he picks up where every single one of us have fallen. So, so they're at the Red Sea. They see this amazing miracle and they start on their journey. They go where? Into the wilderness. Can someone describe to me what a wilderness experience is like? What don't you have? Water's not, not often around. What else? Food? Is there much place to, for your animals? And, it's a bit dry. It's a bit, the weather is extreme. Why in the world would God take these people and take them into the wilderness? Why would he do that? And why would Jesus, having been baptized, be sent into the wilderness, stripped away of every earthly support, stripped away from everything that is seemingly needful for life, What's one of the first things after the Red Sea that the children of Israel struggle with? They, they need water, right? They're, they're, they're thirsty. They're in the desert. And you can only carry so much. And they come to a massive big uh, reservoir of water and they get stuck into it. And what's wrong with the water? It's bitter. You just can't drink it. There's something wrong with the water. And what do they do? Does that surprise you? You know, the reason why I'm easy on the Israelites is because I know that I've done it myself. But we're weird, hey? God just opened up the Red Sea for them. He parted the waters. He did a miracle with water. And now we come to a situation where the water's bitter. And what do they do? They complain. They freak out and they say, Oh, we should have died in the land of Egypt. Oh, this is terrible. Why did you bring us out here? You know, if you were God at that point, what would you feel like doing? You've got to be kidding me. I've, I've, I've saved you, and you can't trust me. You have fun by yourselves and, and just walk off. That's what we would want to do, at least what I'd want to do to the children of Israel. But what does God do? Hey, Moses, cut down one of those trees over there, throw it in the water, and the water will become sweet. And the people saw another miracle, and they were again drinking the water, and it was amazing. Then they go on to the next, they go on to the next stage, and what's hap- what, what issue do they face now? They're hungry. Now they're hungry. And what do they start doing? They start complaining again. They start complaining again. And in their complaints, what do they forget? They forget what God has said. What had he promised to the children of Israel back in Egypt? I'm going to get you out of here and where I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you to the promised land. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. If God has promised to do that, will he let them die on the way? No way. But God is so patient with them. He's, he's showing a miracle again. They start complaining. He shows a miracle again. What would have been the appropriate response when they were at the Red Sea? Because they complained at the Red Sea, right? What would have been the, uh, the appropriate response when the armies are coming in? What would, what's the appropriate response? And why would they feel confident to do that? Because they'd seen how God's work just the other day where he literally wiped out the entire nation of, of Egypt. He just reduced them down to just barrenness almost. He'd shown miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and he'd saved his people. 
it shows me that you know, sometimes we want signs and wonders in our life. We want God to do these amazing things, but Israel saw them every single day almost. But they just kept forgetting what God had done for them. What, they've got the word of God, and they've got their bodies that are screaming out for food. And they listen to their bodies, and they start complaining. They start complaining. They start complaining. You come on further and further into the journey, and then God gives them manna. Imagine not having to work for food. It's always on the ground every single morning when you wake up. It tastes amazing. God himself is providing food for you. But do you know what the children of Israel did years later? They said, we're sick and tired of this worthless manna. Give us meat. And they started complaining. And at that moment, I just go, how in the world could you do that? God has provided you with bread from heaven and you're complaining. And all the way through, there's about, and, and, and I think it's in Numbers, God actually says, these ten times they've tested me. They haven't trusted me. He says, go into the land of Canaan. I'll, I'll fight your battles for you. And they're like, no, it's going to be too hard. He's like, okay, you can stay here for 40 years. No, no, we're going to go. They're just in a bad way. Israel is in a bad way. And it's a story of our lives. Every single person that you can think of in the Bible, apart from Jesus, grabbed the baton and they started running with it but came to a certain point and tripped over. They, were, they, they believed God to a certain point and then they stacked it. The, the, the history of humanity is just rife with these examples. And then we have Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, someone who was in all points made like we are and he came down to the Jordan and he picked up the baton the baton that Israel had dropped straight there at the, um, at the Red Sea. And he proceeded with that baton straight into the wilderness. What would Jesus do after 10 days of not eating food? What would he do? Would he start complaining? Would he start to doubt God's leading in his life? Would he do something to save himself? Would he take matters into his own hands? Jesus starts walking with that baton. He's tracing, retracing the steps of Israel, the steps of humanity, and he, he walks into the wilderness with that baton. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And as I was reading through this particular chapter, it really struck me the significance of the temptation that Jesus faced. And I want to ask you this question. Why did God send them through the wilderness? Why did he give them a wilderness experience? What was the the basic summary lesson that he wanted to teach them? Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Actually, verse 2. It says, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. What's that thing there? To humble you and test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds 
from the mouth of the Lord. Can you summarize that for me in your own mind? Just think about this. What is the purpose? Why did he send Israel into the wilderness? He allowed them to be hungry at times. And then he fed them with manna. So that they would learn that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God was wanting them, if they could come out of there, if they could come out of the wilderness, learning that one lesson, that even when the food supplies go down, as long as we've got a promise from God, everything is going to be okay. If God says, I'll get you to the promised land, it's all good. This promise is good to take to the bank and cash in because it will always come through on time. God desperately wanted his people to learn that. And then when they come to the borders of Canaan, they could go in recognizing that every word that God says will be fulfilled and they could just cling to it. They could cling to it rather than going, hey, let's get someone and let's go back to Egypt. Ah, if only we... And just complaining all the time. Coming to the place where they'd go, okay, the kids are complaining, everyone's getting hungry, but God says that he will get us to the promised land. Let's pray to him. Let's pray to him. Let's get down on our knees and we'll pray. Because he's, he's opened the sea. He's made bitter water sweet. He's made manna fall from... You see, you see the, the story there. God is wanting to get through to us, but we're a little bit thick. So Jesus walks into the wilderness and begins a 40 days, 40 nights, no food. Has anyone here ever fasted before? Yeah? Does anyone enjoy fasting? No. I know some people enjoy fasting. You enjoy fasting? Well, you Donna. I do enjoy fasting. It gives me a really clear brain. But down here doesn't enjoy fasting. Uh, it starts to rumble and groan and all these kind of things. And I've only been into the fast like four hours. <laughs> yeah, Lyle and I were talking about it uh, the other day in radio, just how we got super fast metabolisms and it really gets a bit hectic. And Lyle said, you were saying you trip over your feet by evening if you fast. <laughs> I fasted for three days once, and um, when I compare it to 40 days and 40 nights, it's just like, it's, it's nothing, you know, it's so small. I tell you what, after those three days, it was Sunday, no, no, it was Sunday night that I went to bed and I was going to eat on Monday morning. What was the only thing that was on my mind that night? It was breakfast, and not just breakfast, but breakfast. <laughs> it wasn't just, you know, cereal. You know, when, you, when, you're, when you're really hungry, you don't want just cereal. You want something a little more gourmet than that. And I woke up at 3 o'clock the next morning, and my stomach was just, like, tight. It was sore. And it was, it, don't get me wrong, it had been a blessed time of prayer. I really needed answers, and God gave them to me. But I was so hungry. And I woke up at 3 in the morning, and I just laid there. I couldn't get back to sleep. And a few days before, my mom had actually come out to visit me with the family and whatnot. And they brought me out this big tray of healthy pies. They were awesome pies. It was so nice to have that gift. And they were in the freezer, so I snuck downstairs at about three in the morning and just grabbed those, grabbed two pies and threw them in the oven, went back up and just laid there in bed. (laughs) And I was so, it was just one of those situations where you just, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my devotions. I'm going to read scripture. And I set a time. I'm like, at this time, I'm going to go down. I'm going to eat. My, my mate, who is also a police officer, who I was living with out there, he comes in from his night shift, and he comes in, he sees a glowing light in the kitchen, and he, 
sees two pies in the oven at like four in the morning. <laughs> and he was so confused. And he told me the next day, he said he didn't know what was going on. But I came down and I did what you're not meant to do after you fast. And that is like eat two pies. <laughs> you should kind of ease back into it. But I was so hungry. You know, has anyone else assumed that Jesus got a bit of extra help during that 40 days and 40 nights? You know, he, yeah, it was tough, but, you know, he was God and he could get through that situation a little easier than I would. Friends, he didn't have any support. How would you look and how would you feel after 40 days, no food? You know, Moses was 40 days without food, but he also had no water. So that implies that God supernaturally kept him alive because you die after a few days without water. Jesus just went without food, so he would have been able to drink water. After 40 days, how would you look and how would you feel? What's happening to your cheeks? They're pulled in. What's happening to your eye sockets? They're sunken in. What's happening to just every feature of your body? What's happening to your ribs? You're absolutely emaciating away to a little more than a skeleton, a living skeleton. And are you, are you kind of just cruising around the desert? What's happening at 40 days? That's what you're doing after 40 days. And you're going to find some shade as quickly as you can because the lights are going out. Now, after 40 days, what are you really wanting to do? Three pies. <laughs> I reckon you'd be wanting to have three pies after that effort. And so in that moment, Jesus knows that he is on a divine schedule. The Spirit has led him here. And he recognizes that he's retracing the steps of Israel. 40 years in the desert, 40 days in the desert for Jesus. And he's walking along and he's taking a test. Was Jesus' test greater than the test of Israel? After one or two days of maybe like the food's running out, they start complaining. And Jesus, 40 days, day 30, he's in pain. He's just in overwhelming agony, 35 days. And he gets up to 40 days. And I just did a little bit of research this morning. You go much beyond 40 days, you're gone. You're going to die. Your body's about to shut down for good. And in that moment, the devil comes. You know, the devil is a low life. The devil's a rotter and he does it to you guys and he does it to me. He gets, gets us when we're at our lowest. And he comes and he, he doesn't reveal himself in all of his ugliness. He comes in a very sophisticated, intelligent manner and he wants to take us down. You know, with the aid of this, the, um, the book Desire of Ages, we get some added color into this story. Did Satan come to Jesus as a fallen, dark angel? No. He came to Jesus as a bright, shining angel with brilliance that you could not even begin to describe. Had Jesus been hanging out with angels recently? No. He'd recently heard the voice of God, but he'd grown up like us. He hadn't seen angels, perhaps. And in that state where he's almost in delirium, he's just absolutely overwhelmed, nearly going to eat the sand, and this angel turns up in front of him. Read with me in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 3, now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones...
become bread. Has anyone else like fallen into the trap that I've fallen into and gone, is that the best you've got, Satan? <laughs> like, that seems like a pretty lame kind of a temptation. It's like, what are you, are you kidding yourself? Jesus is not going to fall for that. <laughs> but what about if we put it in this context? Jesus is about to die of hunger. His, his frame is just emaciated. In fact, Ellen White says that once he came back from that episode in the wilderness, his mum recognised that everything had changed about him. His appearance changed. He didn't look the same anymore. It had such a profound impact on him. And then you got this bright shining angel turning up and, and then he thinks that the trial's over. God has sent an angel to help me. And he's just probably lighting up with hope. It's over. I don't have to go through with this anymore. The battle's been won. But no. The devil's pretending to be a shining angel. And he basically says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. The trial's over. You can eat food now. But what's that one word that's a bit suspicious in his statement? If. What do you mean if? He is the son of God. And how do we know that? God says so. You're my son. I love you. And, you, and I'm well pleased with you. And there's this one word, the one word that stands out to Jesus, even in his state of nearly just about to let go of his grip on life, if. He recognized in that particular statement, coming from a shining angel, this comes from a position of doubt. And in that moment, Jesus is thinking, the Spirit is leading him through the, through the experience in the wilderness, those 40 days and 40 nights. And in his mind, he comes to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he realizes, what is the lesson that I need to learn here? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God says, I'm his son. No one can cause me to question that. Jesus says, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, Desire even goes on to say that Lucifer, Satan, packaged in this beautiful, bright, shiny thing, was implying, going, I've heard that there's a fallen angel that's been sent to planet Earth, implying that it was Jesus, trying to get Jesus to doubt his mission and go, hang on a second, if I was honoured by God, why would I be here? And getting him to doubt his identity right there. But he says, no, it is written. I'm I'm going to pick up the baton and keep running with it. I'm not going to drop the baton here because I've come to save my people Israel and the entire world as well. You know, if you think that would be hard enough, when you're screaming out for food, your environment is desolate, there's nothing to lean on, and your stomach and your mind is burning. Everything is screaming at you just to give in and to do something. Now, question, have you ever been tempted to turn a rock to a loaf of bread? When was the last time you got got tempted to do that? I've never been tempted to do that. You know why? Because if I tried to, it'd look real funny. <laughs> you know, it just would not work out. And I want to just make a, a point here. Because people um, have often said, you know, well, how is Jesus made like us in all things? Well, he wasn't, he was, a, he was pure and holy. He didn't want to do the different things that I'm tempted to do. How can he be able to sympathize with me? This is the picture that I want to use to, to describe this. 
Have you ever been tempted to trust in your divine self? No? Because we're not divine. But have you ever been trusted, attempted to trust in your sinful, carnal self in a situation? Yeah, that's exactly what they did at the Red Sea. Trust in God or trust in ourselves and what we think? For Jesus, he, in that moment, could he have turned the stones to bread? Absolutely he could. But he would have been taking things into his own hands and not depending on God. He came to this world to give us an example of submission to the will of God. Adam and Eve had taken it into their own hands and they didn't obey the will of God. And they said, no, we're going to believe the devil and this is going to help us to get better and whatnot. And so now we're all in this boat here. And we're constantly, this, we're up and down here. We're, We've got these pull, oh, God's helping us to trust in him and then we're down trusting here. Jesus was on this plane here. He's trusting God and the temptation was so fierce to act independently and rely on his status as God to be able to do amazing things. He could have stepped in right there to do a miracle to save himself. But Jesus came to give an example of perfect submission. And so at the end of the day, we are tempted the exact same way as Jesus was. We are tempted to trust in ourselves to solve our problems rather than trusting in God. We are tempted to to ignore the promises of God and trust in ourselves. And Jesus was tempted to do the same thing. He was tempted to just allow all these different voices coming and going and act independently of God's will and to use his divine self to be able to do something that would give him an advantage over others. But Jesus stayed humble and surrendered and, and, and in submission as well. Let's move on to the second temptation very quickly. Verse 5. The devil's like, okay, you want to play the scripture game? I I know scripture too. Verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I want to tell you today, does the devil know scripture? He knows it better than we do. He's the first one who's like, okay, you want to play this game? You want to trust in God? I've been able to get everyone else who's come down here. Everyone who's been born, I've been able to take them down. You want to trust in God? That's nice. I know the Bible too. Okay, you want to prove you trust in God, Jesus? There's a scripture that says, he will give his angels charge concerning you to keep you in all your ways. He actually didn't say that bit. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. He's like, okay, Jesus, prove it. If you trust God so much, you step out on the word of God. You cling to the word of God and step out and angels will catch you. But what's that little sus word again? If. If you are the son of God. And Jesus sees through it and he realizes, because he knows scripture, he reads through the scripture. The spirit impresses him with the real scripture and there's a little bit missing. What's the bit missing? To keep you in all your ways. He left that little bit out. The the scripture should read, He shall give his angels charge concerning you to keep you in all your ways, lest you dash your foot against a stone. They will bear you up, etc., etc. He left that little tiny bit of scripture out, hoping that Jesus would presumptuously go and, and try to defend his own, defend himself and step out in presumption. sickening blows that the devil does to Jesus and Jesus is hungry he's 40 days without food 
And he's in a terrible, terrible state. But again, Jesus says, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He quotes another scripture that that God said said to Israel back in the day. Okay, verse verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He basically says, Playtime's over. Here's the deal. See all this stuff I'm showing you? You know, the devil showed him all the glories of this world. He says, I will give it to you. I will give it to you. Just fall down and worship me and we'll shake hands. Now, at this moment, we're like, oh, that's a, that's a really lame thing to do. <laughs> like, that's, well, who do you think you are? But does that seem like a pretty easy alternative to get the planet back? What's laying before Jesus prophetically? Isaiah 53. A lamb led to the slaughter, rejected by his closest friends, beaten, abused, has his beard ripped out. He sees it all coming. And in this state where he feels like dying anyhow, and the devil goes, don't be so hard on yourself, Jesus. I'll give the entire lot to you right now. We'll shake hands on it. All I want from you is if you bow down and worship me. But again, the devil was denying scripture because in in Daniel chapter 2, I think it is, it says that God rules in the kingdom of man and gives it to whomever he will. The devil's not the real ruler down here. He stole it. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm still the ruler down here. And I've come to get my people back. I want to go back two slides very quickly here. Notice this. When When Jesus finished his trial in the wilderness, angels from God came down to him. You can imagine after that, you know, he says, um, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And it says that the devil left him. In rage and humiliation, the devil left him. And Jesus collapses on the ground, and he's about to die. Angels of God come from heaven and pick up the Son of God, their beloved commander from heaven, and they give him food. They nourish him, they get him back into health again, and they brace him, saying, The Father loves you, Jesus. Your father loves you. 3% of the journey is done. Keep going. Keep going. And they encourage him. All the while they wanted to step in and help. But Jesus told them, don't step in to save me. I'm going to go through this. I've picked up the baton and I'm going to go right through with this. Even when my body's screaming out, I will believe the word of God rather than the testimony of my stomach. I'll believe the word of God rather than the testimony of the situation that's happening in my family right now. I'll believe the word of God. After that victory, the victory that he wanted to teach to the children of Israel, that man shall live, not live by bread alone, but by every word, where does Jesus go? What happens here? He crosses the Jordan and then goes into the promised land. And he makes his way up to Nazareth and he goes to um, the wedding at Cana as well. Can you see again that Jesus is tracing the steps of Israel? He, he actually learns, he, he, he puts into practice his own principles that he told to the nation of Israel. He does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And he stands up as a conqueror. He has finished his wilderness assignment, and then he crosses the Jordan, just as Israel was meant to cross the Jordan and go and conquer Canaan. It's interesting. What did Jesus do in conquering Canaan? He goes in there, and he turns the water to wine. He brings joy to the people in that wedding feast. He starts casting out demons. He raises the dead. He heals the sick and afflicted. He he wages war on the devil and his kingdom. And one by one, 
the subjects of the devil are set free. Set free. Set free. And Jesus, day by day, is trusting the will of God. Jesus is trying to induce him. Jesus, if you just become king, be their Messiah that they want. Everything will be easy. No. No. I will stick to scripture. I will stick to the plan that's laid out before me. And I will go right through to the very end. I want to read this to you right here and then we'll close. Desire of Ages, page 121. When we learn the power of his word, we shall not follow the suggestions of Satan in order to obtain food or to save our lives. Our only question will be, what is God's command and what his promise? Knowing these, we shall obey the one and trust the other. Isn't that beautiful? What's God's command and what's his promise? I'll obey that one and I'll trust that one. It's this beautiful, childlike surrender and submission to God. Israel, you're my son. Jesus, you're my son. And as a son, what are you meant to do? Trust the Father and depend and trust in what God is doing. I love this here. In the presence of the witnessing universe, Jesus testified that it is a less calamity to suffer whatever may befall than to depart in any manner from the will of God. I'd rather die, says Jesus, than than to to go away from the will of God that has been revealed in the word of God. To conclude, the the devil did not leave him that day, but in another rendition in one of the other gospels, it says that he left him until he could find a convenient season to come back and have another go. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, the devil ramped up his temptations and his assaults to a fever pitch. Each of these players right here said something to Jesus. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. We'll believe you. Two words. Save yourself. Save yourself. Come on, Jesus. We're all waiting here. If you're the son of God as you claim, why in the world do you want a cross like that? Get off the cross. You come down and we will believe on you. How would that feel when you haven't drunk water? Your, abs- your tongue is dry and you're hanging on the cross in so much pain. The sin of the world is crushing your lights out. You don't think you're going to come out of this. Are you looking for another way? Absolutely you are. You're looking for another way. But Jesus in his mind, he says, no, not my will, but thy will be done. Save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself. I love this quote in Desire of Ages again, 749. Christ could have come down from the cross, but it is because he would not save himself that the sinner has hope of pardon and favour with God. It's because he would not save himself. I just want to conclude by making this application to each one of us. I know that there are times in our lives where circumstance screams at us, calling us to turn away from the will of God. We come up to a Red Sea experience and it just seems like failure is inevitable and we are doomed unless we do something to save ourselves. I want to challenge you to remember that you have an amazing God who's not just sitting up on a throne distant from you, but came down and picked up the baton where you failed and went right into the wilderness 
nearly died of absolute mal... Like, he, he, he had no food for 40 days. He nearly died. And in that moment where he could have given in and we would have been lost, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus became like us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And if you are tempted today, I want to challenge you. The only safe way is to trust in the word of God. You might be thinking, well, that's a little bit hard because I don't know the word of God too well. Well, I, I challenge you to read it. Claim the promises. Make them your own. And you'll see God fulfilling his promises in a powerful, powerful way. But as we look at the story of all of the famous men and women of old, we see that they always drop that baton. In your own strength, you will always drop that baton. But praise the Lord, Jesus accomplished a victory in the wilderness that day that you can claim as your own. You dropped the baton. He picked it up and ran right to the very end. And he says, I'm willing to live inside of your heart. When you're up against those odds again, call out to me. I will give you the victory so that you don't have to resort to the flesh, trying to solve problems in your own strength. You can trust in me. I'll get you through that situation. God knows what it's like to be you and infinitely more. But how? I know, says God. I know what it's like. I've walked a mile, actually. I've walked more. He knows us better than we know ourselves. In Revelation, speaking to the churches, he says, I know. I know your works. I know what's going on. I know the challenges that you're facing. I know. And he gives us counsel. I want to commit you today into the care of one who knows you, understands you, who picked up the baton where you fell and ran it all the way, even though it cost him his life. We serve a good God, don't we? And I want to challenge you in the morning to wake up. If you don't feel like praying, that's okay, because I felt like that too. Think. Has God's word changed? No. Hang on. Everything's actually okay. God hasn't changed. God still cares. And look up and remember that before the throne in heaven, you have your high priest. He nearly died in the wilderness of starvation for you. He knows what you're going through and he'll give you every bit of help that you need. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for your faithfulness that you picked up the baton that I felt and dropped. I want to pray, dear Father, that you please remind each one of us today that you are faithful and you know what we're going through. Please be our high priest today as you are also our lamb. I pray that you would be in us, work through us, that we would not be overcome, but live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit adventist-streaming.org. This is Because He Lives by Sounds Like Rain. God sent His Son They called Him Jesus He came to love Heal and forgive He 
lady and I love to give tips to help make your life more simple. Question for you. Do you ever feel absolutely hopeless? Like the world is a dark, dark place? Look around you. Even in the cold, dreary winter, there is colour, vibrant colour. Winter flowers, sunrises and sunsets, Children wearing their bright, colourful clothes. Life is full of colour, no matter the season. Sure, there are dark corners, but there are usually cracks somewhere that let in the light. Leonard Cohen sang in a really spine-tingling way to me, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. I used to think we had to look for the light, but when it's dark and there's a crack of light... We don't have to hunt for it, it's simply there. Even if our eyes are shut, we all know when there's a crack of light. So, let the light shine. The key here is let. Let the light and beautiful colours bring hope and light deep inside. Hmm, so you're worried? You don't know how things are going to turn out? Things are looking dark? So... Let the light shine, there's bound to be a crack of light, at least. So my first tip today is to let the light shine. I think I hear you asking how. There's a promise in Psalm 18:28, and here's what it says. For thou wilt light my candle, the Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. So let God do this. How? Well, when I was a kid, we used to sing a song. No, I won't sing it to you, but I will give you the words. Sing and smile and pray, that's the only way. If you sing and smile and pray, you'll drive the clouds away. So my second tip is a simple one too. Here it is. Why worry when you can pray? Or, with my perverse sort of brain, I perhaps could put it another way. Why pray if you're going to worry? So many times we pray and worry. So here's what to do. Read Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. No, I'm not going to quote it now. You've got to grab a pen and write that down. Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34. Go on, read it, believe it, and do it. Because Jesus himself said to, and Jesus tells the truth. When you pray to our loving God who bends down and listens to us, who knows our needs, the light will shine and the darkness will be gone. Go on, just do it. Two simple tips today. Let the light shine and why worry when you can pray? Take action and your life will become more simple, guaranteed. So that's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.